The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, good morning, y'all. If you've got Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Uh, We're going to be in Judges chapter 10 this morning. Hey, uh, my name's Eric. I'm the lead teaching pastor here, uh, and we've been going through the book of Judges. This is week number seven, chapter number uh, 10, and I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. Uh, Before we get into uh, the text this morning, I just want to make a a few quick announcements. Starting uh, in January next year, we're we're actually starting to redo, revamp, relaunch uh, a lot of the ministries and a lot of the volunteers here at the church. And so, uh, We believe in helping people trust and treasure Jesus for life, and the best way we do that is by giving ourselves, loving one another, and serving uh, the body in our community. And and so I just want to make a real quick plug for this. In the seatbacks around you is this little card called Give, Serve, Love. So whether you uh, currently volunteer in a ministry or, or you don't currently volunteer in a ministry, if you would just simply say, you know what, I'm willing to get involved. We're starting a training process. We're starting group process. We're starting to uh, revamp these teams. And so if you're interested, if you're willing, you're saying, you know what, I'm not real sure what to do. Hey, just fill out a card. Uh, uh, drop it off at the welcome counter so that we can get a, in touch with you. Uh, if you've not already received an email and you have filled one of these cards out, uh, we probably got your email address wrong. And it probably kicked back. Uh, And so you can text the number that's on the card with your information so that we can give you all the updates on uh, what's going on. If you're new or newer to the church, uh, we just ask that you fill out one of these welcome cards. You can drop that off uh, at the welcome counter as well. Uh, And next week, we actually have uh, an open door lunch for everyone who's new or newer. You're like, I don't know if I'm new. I don't know if I'm newer. Have you ever filled out a card? You should fill one out. Have you ever been to an open door? You should fill one out. All right, so if you, if you are newer, newer, just make a moment uh, and take that out. I guarantee the lunch is going to be uh, delicious. I believe we're catering in uh, from Qdoba. So if you love Qdoba, that's gonna be your thing. We're not going to be serving these. <laughs> these are the cheapest hot dogs you can buy in St. Charles County, I believe. Uh, how many of you guys like hot dogs? I think I had two hot dogs this week. What's amazing to me is that Americans love hot dogs. They they love hot dogs. I I looked it up this week, and it says that uh, estimates say that Americans consume 20 billion hot dogs a year. That actually works out to 70 hot dogs per person each year. 70. And some of you are like, I don't eat hot dogs. That means someone else ate 140. Uh, a, a 20 billion hot dogs. Listen, it says that hot dogs were served in 95% of the homes in the United States. 95%. But let me ask you, have you ever looked at the package? <laughs> this, one, this one says classic bun-length franks. They don't call them hot dogs because that would be an insult to our pets. But it says it's made with chicken and pork is added. Okay, so as I read this, listen, the first ingredient is mechanically separated chicken and water pork. So I'm thinking, mmm. <laughs> what is mechanically separated chicken? I looked it up. 
The USDA defines it as a batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing chicken bones with attached edible tissue. Who defines edible? I don't know. Chicken bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure. This process is called advanced meat recovery. I know your mouth is watering now. My point is this. Hot dogs are not real meat. It actually says, it says less than 2% on here. So it could be two. It could be one. It could be none. But it also says things like, like modified cornstarch. It's not even actual cornstarch. It's modified, like they changed it. There's, uh, of course, a lot of salt. Uh, there's a, a corn syrup, uh, flavorings. F- flavorings. I, I don't know. Sodium phosphate, potassium, right? Uh, it's just random things I cannot really pronounce. And so th- this, is, this is my point. It, is a, a, lot of, a lot of people would say, okay, hot dogs are not, not good tasting. But more than that, they're not good for you. But most Americans really kind of build their faith like a cheap hot dog. And, and what I mean by that is they take a little bit of, of, of this truth or, or what could be a truth, or, or they take a little bit of this belief, or, or they take a little bit of something from that, and, and they make a concoction that, that you can barely even call Christianity. And, and we would agree that that is not just simply mad, bad for you, but it's really spiritually toxic. And so in the book of Judges today, we're going to see that Israel has a little bit of like faith in the one true God, but really what's happened is they've mixed their faith with a whole lot of sodium nitrate of their culture, a whole lot of pressed bones. And so let's pick it up in Judges chapter 10. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 6. It says, the people of Israel, again, everyone say, again. Yeah, yeah, you're saying it like that because we've read that line before. Again, if you're new to the book of Judges, it's like over and over and over again, we see the people of Israel doing something again. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals and the Ashtroth of the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook. Everyone say forsook. That means, that means abandoned. means they, they didn't even acknowledge. They actually walked away. It says they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites. Now, this is a familiar pattern. 
And if we're honest, it's a pattern that we see much within ourselves. You see, the Israelites, they serve these false gods. They go to the sodium nitrates and the, and the other gods and the, and, the, and the other things of the world, and they just kind of pick and choose, and they kind of shape it into a mold. And in the end, what happens is they wind up in slavery. They wind up oppressed. And so listen, just like them, we are a pattern-driven people. Anyone have a pattern that they do daily or weekly. Listen, that happens to us spiritually as well. There's these spiritual patterns that we continue to fall into. We actually have a spiritual default setting, and it seems, it seems to make the way that we live our lives uh, habitual over and over and over and over again. And so listen, let me just be honest with you. If you feel like your life is in a pattern of disappointment or you feel like your life is in a pattern of frustration or a pattern of oppression or, or even, even you find yourself in a pattern of sin, uh, there is one common denominator to all of that, and that's you. You're involved in all of it. And so our default pattern ultimately is to forsake God and pursue other idols. Forsake God and pursue other idols. We love chasing things outside of the Lord. We love looking to things, longing for things, uh, loving things, pursuing whatever we think, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. If, if, if it works for you, I'm going to try it. If it works for you, I'm going to try it. Whatever it is, we're going to pursue it because we think that in the end of the road, it's going to make us happy which is idolatry and it is the root of all sin against God. Uh, now, I want you to just imagine that this was you. Uh, imagine you made a covenant with your bride. You made a promise. And, and, and you, 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 you begin to, to provide for her. You begin to deliver her. You promise to protect her. You pr promise to love her no matter what. You promise to give her uh, the, the longings of her heart. And, and you made a promise to your bride. Yet, over and over and over and over again, she cheats on you. I want you to imagine that. She chases, she pursues other lovers, not once, not twice, six times in 10 chapters, it says that they abandoned God. They just walk out on him. They just say, forget you, I'm gonna do my own thing. And most people in our culture will say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's God. God should just deal with it. Like God is some sort of vending machine that can be kicked and punched if it doesn't spit out the right drink. Like God somehow doesn't, doesn't deserve justice or, or should just simply handle all the evil against him. Listen, Jeremiah chapter two has the clearest picture of this pattern that we find ourselves in. In, in Jeremiah chapter two, it, it says, thus says the Lord, this is verse two. God says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a, give me that word, as a bride. So here's the picture. 
I remember when we were like this. I remember when, when you were young in your faith and you were, you, you were, you were with me and, and you were my bride and I was, I was your lover. And, and verse three, or it says, how you followed me. You trusted me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Listen, this is God talking. Like this is not some emotionless, passionless, no feelings God. This is, this is, hey, I remember when there was a thing between us. I remember how you trusted me and how you'd follow me. Even though you weren't real sure where we were going, you would be by my side. This is not some emotionless God. This is a God who is completely in love with his people. He says, I remember how close we were and how you trusted me. Look in verse five. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they forsook me, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Listen, doesn't that sound like the pattern of our lives? Doesn't that, doesn't that sound familiar? You see, God saves us, God delivers us, God brings us, he clothes us, he adorns us, and he wraps us in to himself by his grace, by his mercy. He continues to provide for us life, breath, and everything. And then for whatever reason, we just walk away. We start chasing other things besides God that would somehow we think would satisfy us. And I, I, I do this. I struggle. This is the pattern of my sin nature. And, and, so, and so whatever reason, we chase other things. And God is looking at us saying, what did I do? God's like, where did I go wrong? What, what fault did you find in me that somehow would lead you to just walk out on me. What fault? Listen, verse 11. He says, has a nation changed its gods even though they're not even gods? But my people, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. He goes back to that worthless He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Just be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Everyone say forsaken. They've abandoned me. The fountain of living waters. And number two, they hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that hold no water. God says there's two sins that make up this deadly pattern. One, God says, you've abandoned me. The first thing that happens is, is you, you've forsaken me, God says. And it's meaning like, not only do they just simply do whatever is right in their own eyes, not only do we choose sin, but he's saying, you actually choose sin over me. The fountain of living water. 
the one who is the source of life, the one who is the source of everything that your soul longs for. It's like, it's like you're, you're looking for something that would somehow you could drink in that would actually be more quenching, more satisfying than living water. He says, you've chosen other things. And then he says, he says be appalled at that. Like, isn't that, isn't that mind-blowing that we would do that? You left me the fountain of living water because you thought you could go into the desert and dig a hole deep enough to find some type of water that would be more refreshing. And the problem with your digging and your digging and your digging is that it's a broken cistern. It doesn't even hold water. I mean, how crazy is that? That God is saying, hey, come to me, drink from me. Hey, hey, follow me, trust me. I am the source of all life. And you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go dig a hole. I'm gonna try and find that somewhere else. Listen, he says, this is the brokenness that is in each one of us. Like we choose to dig a hole looking for refreshment rather than clinging to God himself. Not only do we just dig holes, we actually know the fountain is there. And we actually ignore it. Why are you digging? I'm really thirsty. Have you ever dug a hole? That's exhausting work. I mean, particularly here in Missouri, it's like there's a level of like rock and I don't know, it's like six inches down or something. Like, it's exhausting, and you're sitting there digging, and, and, and God's like, what are you doing? I'm really thirsty. And he's like, seriously? And we forsake God. And so, like this nation that we see in Judges, we see this sinful pattern of rejecting God and then replacing God. Rejecting God and then replacing God. Okay, God, I, I don't want that. I don't want you. I want this. This is going to be my God for a while. And when this thing lets me down, I'm gonna go dig another hole trying to find something else. So we reject God and replace God. Your life becomes a perpetual cycle of digging cisterns that don't even hold water. Your life becomes a pattern. You say, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm not really happy, so I need to find a new relationship. I need to get out of my marriage. I need to get out of my relationship. I'm not really happy. I'm gonna go digging. Oh, uh, you know what? I don't like the way God made me, so I'm gonna actually uh, go dig for a new identity, or, or I'm gonna go digging. Or I, I don't, I'm not satisfied with the level of achievement that I have or the level of income. I'm gonna actually go digging. I'm gonna go find something that would finally satisfy, something that would finally complete me. And you dig and you dig and you dig and you dig and deeper, 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 thinking that somehow if you dig deep enough that the water is down there somewhere and God is standing there saying, it's the wrong well. You're, you're, you're looking in the wrong place. It's broken and it doesn't even produce water. L look at what happens in Judges 10. Verse 10, 
And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have what? Forsaken. We've actually abandoned our God and have actually served other gods, Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians? Did I not save you from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and from the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites when they oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand? Did I not do all of those things? Yet you have what? You forsake, you left me and you served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen and let them save you in your time of distress. For the first time in the book of Judges, God says, no. No. Now, this may be shocking to some of you because you've been taught that God will always just deal with it. And if we would just cry out to God that he'll never just not show up. So why? Why does God not deliver? Does that mean God is breaking his covenant promise with his people? No. God always, always keeps his promise. But God refuses the request not because he's forsaking them, but rather because he wants to save them. Huh? That's confusing. Well, if you remember last week, the deepest battle that you and I face is not, face is not the oppression around us, but is the battle within us. And so God is saying, listen, you want rescue from all these oppressors and all these things that are going around you, but I want to save you. I want to save your heart. I want to change your heart. I want to save you from your idols and your adultery. Listen, Jesus says our greatest fear should not be what someone can do to our body, but rather that we should fear for our soul. Let me be honest with you. It is one thing for the wayward prodigal to humble himself, repent from his sin, come home and have his father run toward him with open arms. God will always, 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 always receive someone like that. First John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. That's his promise. We come to him in repentance and he saves us. He will not reject. But I want you to imagine a wife who is unfaithful. I want you to imagine a wife pleading to her husband for security and provision and peace 
just long enough until she can find someone else. These people, what you've got to understand is over and over and over again, they find themselves in this pattern. And these people, they don't want God for God. They don't want God. They're just in pain. And they just want relief. And they want somebody, anybody, to just come make it stop. And so we're like, oh, we've tried all these other gods. We've dug all these other cisterns. It doesn't seem to work out. Let's pray. Let's cry out to the Lord and see what he'll do. I mean, I mean, I mean what's the worst that can happen? Him say no? There's been no change of heart toward God. And this is a cry to say, God, get me out of trouble. Now, let me be very clear with you. It is possible to come to God in an idolatrous way. It is possible to come to God in an adulterous way, which is why God denies their request and sometimes your request. That's why God says, no. In fact, in the book of James, we actually get this, this shocking illustration of how, of, of how uh, God is pictured as cheated on, like a, like a husband is cheated on by his wife. Look in, look in James chapter 4, in verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Remember the battle? Murder is not the problem. It's something that's going on in here first. He says, you, you, you have something going, like there's this desire in your heart and, and, you, and you don't have, so you just lash out. He says, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. Everyone say ask. Now we're talking about prayer. Now we're talking about I don't have something, so I'm going to ask. Verse 3, you ask. Yes, you're praying right now, and you don't receive. Why? It says because you ask wrongly. So there's a wrong way to pray? He says you ask wrongly, and I want to define that for you. You ask in order to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you see the image here? That's the picture. You see, you see, he's accusing these people who are praying wrongly and praying to spend whatever God, they want God to give them on their own idols, on their own passions, on their own pursuits. But it says when you do that, it's like you're an adulterer. It's like you're, you're a wife cheating on her husband. It goes on. Verse four, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, a wife failing to love, falling in love with another man, a friendship with the world is enmity with your husband, God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, this or this other lover, makes himself an enemy of God. Do you... Suppose it has no purpose that the scripture says, I yearn jealously over your spirit. That's a small s spirit that he made to dwell in us. 
This is the picture in the book of Judges. God is like a husband who has a wife, and he yearns jealously over her. This is a righteous jealousy. This is not God seeing what someone else has and says, I want that. This is God saying what is rightfully mine is being given to someone else. That's a righteous jealousy. He says, don't you see how badly I want you to be with me? Don't you see how badly I want you for myself? Don't you see how I want you in my home, in my room, in my courts, sitting with me, loving me? passionately pursuing me. And so this is the picture of a husband looking at his wife, constantly going and cheating on him. But here in this picture in James 4, what is she doing now? She's praying. And she comes into the house. She comes into the bedroom and says, oh, 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 husband, I'm in this terrible situation. She gets down on her knees and says, oh, Lord, oh, oh, husband, I, 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 I need some relief. I, I, I need some money. Could you, could you give me some money? Could you give me, give me $50? Oh, husband, could you, could you give me $50? I mean, in your grace and in your mercy, could you please give me $50? And the husband gives her the money. Here's $50. She says, oh, thank you. And then she goes down the hall and pays it to another man to sleep with him. That's the picture. That's the picture that she takes what God gives her and says, I'm gonna go spend it outside on my passions. Let me ask you, do you use prayer that way? You make God the butler of your life. Ringing a bell. Oh God, please. Simply using prayer as the means of deliverance or worldly comfort. Do you ask God to provide other lovers for you? To give you idols like comfort or money or fame or prosperity? Do you come to God crying out for idols or do you come to God crying out for more of him? God, I need you more in my life. I am like a sheep. I have gone astray. I don't want these things. I want you. I've been digging and digging and digging. Listen, I don't want these things. I want you. The battle for us, the battle for you, the battle for me is that we would see him truly, truly as the living fountain to know him and to love him and to treasure him, not just to use him. That's not a healthy relationship. Listen, it's not wrong to pray, to get well from sickness. It's not wrong to pray for your family to be safe. It's not wrong to pray for a new job if you need a job. And it's not wrong to pray and desire deliverance from your oppressors. It's just wrong if you want it more than God. 
and you're just gonna use him to get what you want. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because that's idolatry. That's adultery. Are you using God or are you worshiping God? The people and judges weren't worshiping God. They just wanted God to get them out of their trouble. Because when God gets them out of their trouble, they won't build their relationship with God. They'll just go back pursuing the things of the culture. And God says, I'll tell you what, you want deliverance? Why don't you go and cry out to all your other lovers? I tell you what, you want deliverance? Why don't you go and cry out to the other gods that you've chosen? Let them save you. Why don't you go dig a hole somewhere and see if that hole will somehow deliver you? Verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Listen to this. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Do you ever say that? Oh, that. That'll make your heart race. Oh, God. Just do whatever is good to you. It's like I'm putting all of my desires to the side and say, your will be done. Whatever seems good to you, only if you could please deliver us. I pray like that. So they put away all the foreign gods from among them and serve the Lord. Listen to this. And he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. Listen, that's true repentance. He said, they say, listen, I don't care what we get. I just want your will. I just want you to do what is right. If that means, if that means letting me perish and saving my kids, I don't know what that means. But God, just do whatever is good to you. Listen, there are two signs of real repentance. Two signs. One is real sorrow over sin, not just the consequence. Like real brokenness over the sin, not just the consequence, and, and a sorrow over your idolatrous motives, not just changing behavior. So it's not just, oh, I identify what I did wrong, and I said I'm sorry for that behavior, but repentance, listen to me, is sorrow over why we chose the wrong above God in the first place. It's sorrow over why I even thought a hole in the ground would be better. That's a heart issue over a behavior issue. God, my heart wants holes in the ground rather than you, and I am broken over it. 
And the Lord, it says, became impatient over the misery of Israel. So back to you digging a hole. Oh my gosh. Is that not miserable? God's standing there watching you dig the hole. In your misery, he's like, okay, I've had enough. Just put it down. Like that, like that tells me that, I love that phrase. It says he became impatient over the misery because God feels for his people. It's not that he doesn't have compassion. He does have compassion. He hurts with them. And he says, enough is enough. The next verse in that James illustration, James uh, 4, 6, it says that God gives more grace. So when we cheat, when we ask God for stuff rather than him, when we ask God for other lovers rather than him, the next verse, it says, okay, but God gives more grace. How many of you are thankful for God's grace? Oh, God, thank you for your grace. Okay, so God, he, he, he says, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to send a judge. I'm going to send someone to help deliver you. Chapter 11 comes. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Say mighty warrior. Come on, say it in like a warrior's voice. Say mighty warrior. Mighty warrior. Yeah, that's right. He was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Hmm. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, you shall not have the inheritance of our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows, that's weird, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. I mean, imagine if you were the guy that kind of hung out with him and was like, hey, that's me, worthless fellow. So here, here's, here's the picture. Um, Jephthah was rejected by his brothers. He moves off to another land. He flees far away. And then he kind of comes this, uh, this mob boss, right? And then, and then 11.4 comes. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against India, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, hey, come and be our leader so that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? That sound familiar? It's like he's saying exactly what God said. He's like, you don't really want me. You want my warrior side. You want my gang. You want my pot. You want me to come fight for you now? That may be a sign for the people. They say, no, no, no. We're really sorry. We're, we're so sorry that, that we're actually, we'll allow you to be in charge. And, and so Jephthah, he actually, he takes on the challenge. And, and the first thing he does is he starts reasoning, tries to reason with the Ammonites, all right? Uh, talking about land and, uh, you know, it should be ours. You know, it's, it's all a mistake. It's all uh, doesn't work. And, and so he tries to reason with them. It doesn't work, so they go to war. Look in verse uh, 29. I know I just, I just paraphrased like 20 verses. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead 
and Manasseh and passed on Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow. Everyone say vow. It's a promise. I'm going to promise you something, God. I'm going to make a vow. And he said to the Lord, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever. Now, my Bible translates with that little one right there, which actually the original text would say whoever. Not whatever. Whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer, not it, some of the Bibles say it, but the translation is him, I will offer him up for a burnt offering. Okay, I want you to get this picture. God, I promise, if you give me victory in this battle, when I go home, whoever walks out of my house, I will offer to you as a burnt offering. Now, you don't need to know the tabernacle system to know a burnt offering is to put someone to fire over the altar. Keep going. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from error and neighborhood of Minnith, 20 cities as far as Abel Karim. With a great blow, so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, for I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So Jephthah promised to make a human sacrifice to God. If God would give him victory, And he obviously expected someone else, a servant, but not his only child. Jephthah promised a burnt offering to God. Deuteronomy 12, 31 says a human sacrifice is detestable and the Lord hates it. So why did he make that vow? That doesn't seem very righteous. Doesn't seem very Christian of him. Well, here's the problem. Jephthah was clearly deeply desensitized to violence. Apparently, burnt offerings were super common. I mean, when you worship seven other gods besides the one true God, you start to understand that human sacrifice was no big deal. All these other gods would just require it or demand it. And so Jephthah had clearly been desensitized to the pagan cultures around him. Listen, this is a vivid picture of the horrible example of how believers can profess faith in God and hold to maybe some truth, but let the world squeeze in all of these little things into that little small mold that fits on a bun. And today, we are more likely to let the world attitudes or things like faith, and what the world says about marriage, or what the world says about money, or what the world says about sexuality, to come in and say, oh, that sounds good. 
And we began to let them saturate in, process these, these bones and marrow and parts into what we know as biblical truth. Jephthah was not only infected by the pagan immorality, but also the pagan works of righteousness. He didn't understand God's character. Listen, I think one of the biggest problems we face in the church is we don't understand God's character. We either say, oh, he should just deal with it and there's no problem with sin. I mean, he just accepts me the way I am, so there's no really need to repent. Or we don't understand his grace and his loving and his kindness. And so, so we don't understand the character of God. You see, human sacrifice was, was how you would, would bargain with a God. Pagan worshipers did human sacrifices. They would do them in order to bribe and barter with God to get whatever they wanted. Do you barter or try to bribe God to get what you want? Anyone ever made a vow to God and said, God, if you do this, I will never again. Oh God, I promise this, I'm making a vow and I'm serious this time. If I do this, God, you do this. And so the God of the Bible, listen, only wants one kind of sacrifice. And it is that the self-sacrificially offering to God with the Lordship over my entire life. God, I want to be a living sacrifice for you. I'm offering you every part of my life. Do whatever is good in your sight. Your will be done. Change my mind. Change my heart. It's completely yours. I'm not fighting against you anymore. I'm completely surrendering. And even... Your complete surrender does not secure his favor, favor, but it's actually a response to his favor. He's already promised to deliver you. And if his grace and his mercy, he promised to deliver me, then my response of, of surrender is not to purchase his favor. It's actually in response of his favor. Oh God, how would you love a wretch like me? How would you ever receive a, a sinner like me? My response to surrender is only in her first response to his grace. Romans 12, 1, therefore, as a living sacrifice, offer yourself to God. Jephthah believed that the Lord needed to be impressed. The Lord doesn't need to be impressed by you because, listen, you can't impress him. He thought that maybe God could be bought. Maybe God could be controlled by certain behaviors. That maybe I could, I could start to have a bartering system with God. And the tragedy is that God has actually already decided to save his sinful people, and God already decided to use Jephthah to do it. And here's the hardest thing. Jephthah seems to have no concept of God's grace. Let me ask you, do you know grace? Do you know grace? The unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God toward sinners, that there's nothing you could do to earn it. There's nothing you do to deserve it. It is the gift of God that no man can boast. And so Jephthah, he sees God basically like a pagan God, Believing that God's favor could be earned through maybe flattery or through religious behavior or through religious sacrifices. I can't tell you how many people I talk to 
that go to church because they think that that is the way to earn favor before God. That I do these things or else God will get me. If I don't do these things, then, then my scale will not be tipped. And Jephthah, when, when, when he obviously realizes like how crazy his vow was and how it kind of trapped him, why doesn't he just confess his sin and his foolishness and break his vow and save his daughter? Why doesn't he just do that? He doesn't know God's grace. He doesn't trust God. He trapped himself. He, he doesn't trust him. He, he thinks that God's going to get him if he doesn't keep his vow, even at the life of his own dollar, daughter. This is the same works-based righteousness that is proclaimed through churches abroad and local. This is the same works-based righteousness. And God says, my altar is closed. There is not a vow you can make, a promise that you can make that would somehow earn my favor towards you because my favor is not found in your obedience or your religious behavior. My favor is found in my son, Jesus Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing left. When I see you, if you have put your faith in the son, Jesus, I see righteous. Perfect, holy, blameless. There is only one deal God makes to his people. That's Jesus' complete righteousness for our absolute surrender. His righteousness for our sin. So let me just, let me just close with these thoughts. As, as the band gets ready to come, we get ready to respond. Let me, just, let me just give you some things that I need you to hear. Number one, we are far more influenced by our culture than we realize. which is why we must cling to the word of God. Because we are more influenced by our culture than we realize. And what can end up happening is, this, is, is we begin to develop this concoction of faith that's not even Christian at all. Maybe 2%. We have a hot dog faith instead of true faith. And in the end, it leads to destruction by creating a pattern of digging broken cisterns. Listen, parents, if you're digging broken cisterns, you're teaching your kids how to dig for broken cisterns. If you're teaching your kids how to worship the one true God and repent where you fall short, you're teaching your kids to live and love the one true God. Do not allow culture to dictate what goes in to your life. Second thing, God's grace is hard to grasp. Let me let you off the hook. God's grace is hard to grasp. It's because God's grace is free, but it does not come without cost. You hear me? God's grace is free, but it doesn't come without cost. Like Jephthah, Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrow. He was acquainted with grief. 
Yet we did not call on him to save us. He chose to save us in his mercy. He came to rescue us like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He willingly made the ultimate sacrifice in my place, in your place, for your sin upon the cross. And all the penalty that is due to you was poured out upon the son. All the wrath of God toward all my idolatry and all my adultery was poured out upon Jesus Christ for those who would believe. So that now, through faith alone, no vows, no promises, no altar calls, no, no dung, nothing. Like faith alone brings me back to him. We no longer need to make any offering on the altar of God and make some vow before him, somehow trying to earn the salvation that he freely gives. That is the real meat of the gospel. It is the perfect life of Christ the life that we could never live, the penalty that we deserve, he paid. It is the righteous for the unrighteous, once and for all time, for anyone who would put their trust in him. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gave us a symbol of this. He gathered with his disciples after giving thanks, he took the bread. And he said, this is my body. And my body is broken for you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. You see, it was his body broken, but ours was deserved. He did it, and today we want to remember. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink and do it in remembrance of me. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves. That we should look at this, 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 this idolatry-driven heart, this adulterous-driven heart. And not just simply look at our behaviors, but the reason why we behave the way we behave. And ask God to say, cleanse me. Knowing that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we truly can come into his courts and come into his presence and receive his grace. And so today, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. I'm going to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal what is going on within. And that truly you would repent of whatever that is, whatever that waywardness is. And that you would take the bread and take the cup in remembrance of him. If you don't have one of the communions, we've got some in the baskets. We've got some volunteers that will be happy to pass those out in just a moment. They'll just raise your hand and, and, and get one. But I also want to say that this, this is uh, something that Jesus gives to believers only. This is not just a, a, a fun snack we take at church, but 
If you're not a believer in Jesus, then we would just say, then, then don't partake in it. It's really a sacred moment for us as Christians to begin to really reflect and, and lean upon God's grace through faith. So I'm gonna pray in just a moment. And I wanna encourage you. Examine the ways that culture is influencing you. Put away those false idols. Stop digging holes and come to the fountain of living water and trust his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, today we just acknowledge that our pattern of our hearts is broken. In many areas and situations, we are wayward. And so now, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would begin to move. Holy Spirit, begin to reveal areas within each one of us that we've dug holes, worshiped other things, chased other lovers, and Lord, change us from the inside out. My behavior is a sign, is a symptom of my wayward disease. And so Jesus today, cleanse me. I ask you, forgive me, wash me, Take upon all my unrighteousness and let me receive by your grace and by faith your complete righteousness in my life. Lord, you see me. You know me. You have mercy upon me. And today, I receive that in Jesus' name. Today, we take the bread and we remember your body broken. We take the cup and we remember your blood shed so that truly we would be free to live as a living sacrifice for you and you alone. Jesus, save us. In your name, amen. Amen. When you're ready, take some time to spend with the Lord, partake in communion.